All right, how's everybody doing today? Well, I started checking the weather channel on the way here. I knew that uh, time was drawing near and we were going to be getting on the plane and coming here. And Angela was watching more than I was, and she said, you know what, we're going back into a hurricane. So I remember we, way back when, um, when I first started here, I don't know what hurricane it was, but it went out and came back and everything flooded here. Does anybody remember that? Those days. Uh, I remember those days. Uh, so we kind of thought we might be coming back into that, but so far God's been good and uh, it's not really what's going on. It's just nice to know that there are actually clouds and rain comes from them. Because in Oklahoma there aren't many clouds and when they do come the rain doesn't fall. Uh, we've been in a drought for quite some time. We have a pond um, and our pond has no water because there has been no rain. And uh, so it's nice to see clouds and uh, a little bit of rain. It's good to see some familiar faces, and I'm glad to be here. Angela and our youngest son, Britton, are here. Glad uh, that they're here. Many of you have asked about where our other children are. Miles, he's 20. Uh, well, he just turned 20 on Friday. Corey is 16. Uh, Olivia is 15. And, of course, Britton is 10. When we left here, he wasn't even two yet. So uh, time flies. It certainly does. Well, I'm glad you're here. Just know that uh, I've been much in prayer for quite some time about these series of meetings, and uh, Todd, I want to thank you for the privilege of allowing me to come, um, so we're just going to get down to business, okay? Uh, I believe we do need to get down to business. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, if you would, turn to 2 Kings chapter 7, 2 Kings chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, and if you would, please stand with me in honor and in reverence of the reading of God's holy Word. 2 Kings chapter 7, starting with verse 1, the Bible says, Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sayah of flour will sell for a shekel and two sayahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Hey, look! Even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this really happen? Being sarcastic here to the man of God. Elisha said, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. But the question I want every one of us to ask and to think about is the question that these four lepers asked. Why stay here until we die? Why stay here until we die? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. I pray right now that you'd begin to speak to us. And I pray for the next few moments that we would not be worried about things that happened yesterday or last week, things that will happen later on today or next week. But God, for the next few moments, I pray that we would surrender to you our heart and our mind. And God, I pray that your spirit would fall on this place and speak to us the truth. 
God, I pray now that you would work and move and do as only you can. God, I proclaim to you today that I am nothing and you are everything. So, God, I submit myself to you. And I pray at this very moment that I would decrease and that your spirit in me would increase. Allow me to preach with boldness and passion what your word says. And, God, I pray that you would challenge us and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the Mariners Museum in Newport News, Virginia, there's a special display. This display is a rickety homemade aluminum kayak. This tiny makeshift kayak seems oddly out of place in the midst of displays for impressive Navy vessels and artifacts from significant battles on the sea. But a bronze plaque tells museum visitors the story behind this tiny makeshift kayak. In 1966, an auto mechanic named Loriano and his wife Consuelo decided that they could no longer live under the oppressive rule of, of Cuba's regime. After spending months collecting scrap metal, scrap, scrap metal, they placed together a boat just barely big enough for two small people. Then Loriano rigged up a small lawnmower engine on the back of the kayak. I'm sure that looked good. After months of planning on a moonless September night, sitting back to back and wearing only their swimsuits, they set out in the treacherous straits of Florida. They had only enough water and food for a couple of days. Finally, after they had floated in open water for more than 70 hours, the United States Coast Guard found and rescued the couple in the Florida Keys. Was it worth the risk to find freedom? Loriana was asked. He said yes. Now this is years later. When one has grown up in liberty, you realize it's important to have freedom. We lived in the enormous prison, which is Cuba, where one's life is not worth one crumb. Where one goes out into the street and does not know whether or one will return to one's home because the political police can arrest you without warning and put you in prison. Before this could happen to us, we thought that going into the ocean and risking death or being eaten by sharks is a million times better than suffering under political oppression. Loriano and Consuelo made a makeshift boat. They sailed the open sea. They risked dying in the ocean. They risked being eaten by sharks. And you ask the question, why? You ask the question, why? They decided it's better to, to risk it out there than to stay here till we die. It's better to risk everything and do something than to stay here until we die. This morning, I, I, I just want to share with you, and, and I want you just need to know this. This has been the hardest group of meetings I've ever had to prepare for in all my life. I was telling Angela, it's been so hard for me. It's been a struggle. I believe God wants to do something, and, and I believe He needs to do something, not only here, not only with me and not only with you, but in churches all over America, the Spirit of God needs to fall. And we've got to do something different. We can't stay here or we will die. We can't stay here. We will die. Every scripture passage you read has three things. If you've got something to write on, you might want to start writing some of this stuff down. Not that I'm any good, but the Word of God is good and it stands forever. Amen? 
We might as well get the amens rolling too, okay? Amen? Amen. Let's get it on. Every passage of Scripture has three things. Three things in common. Number one, there's context. Number two, there's truth. And number three, there's application. There's context, which tells us the story and the background of the text we're reading. There's truth, the truth that's there, and the application. How does this make sense to me? So today we're going to take a a unique look at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at it, first of all, in its its context. What's going on? When you go to 2 Kings chapter 6, you kind of get the, the full story. Everybody, or has anyone ever listened to Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey, he's kind of old school, he's not around anymore, but he would always tell a story and then he would say, here's the rest of the story. Well, here's kind of how the story goes. Israel is now divided into two kingdoms. You've got the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Samaria is a unique town. It's been bought by by the king, and now his son is there, Joram, and it's a unique town. It's fortified on three sides. It's backed up to a mountain, and around the city, it's fortified, and no one can get in or out because it's surrounded. But then when you look to the west, Samaria is 300 feet on a hill, and when you look out the city gate, you can see down into the valley below And from what I understand and what the historians say, it's a picturesque setting. And you could look down and see into the valley and it was all good. Well, the king of Aram decided that he was going to attack Samaria. And the Arameans were in the valley below Samaria and they had cut everything off. So, no one's going out of Samaria Nothing or no one is going in to Samaria. So if nothing's going out and nothing's coming in, eventually what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Goldsboro? Let's say no more trucks are coming in and they're not delivering groceries to Walmart or Piggly Wiggly or any of these other stores. And they're not bringing chicken, uh, Cajun fried chicken to Bojangles or, or stuff to What happens? Well, eventually they're going to sell everything they've got and guess what's going to go on? We're going to get hungry. A famine's going to take place and that's exactly what happened to Samaria. The Arameans were down there in the valley and they had cut everything off. Nothing was happening. The Bible says literally that the Arameans had laid siege to Samaria. The phrase laid siege comes from the Hebrew word to soar, which literally means to attack with intent. To attack with intent. Their intent was to cramp, confine, cause distress, and literally defeat the Israelites. So they were in the valley laying siege to the city of Samaria. There was trouble. That's the context. There, there was trouble. Not only was there an attack going on, they were laying siege and, and literally starving the people. But understand this, the inhabitants of Samaria were suffering and dying. When you understand what's going on, uh, the scripture describes in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25, what's going on. First of all, there's no food. And a donkey's head... 
If you can imagine this, a donkey's head is being sold for 80 shekels. 80 shekels of silver. In our economy, it's somewhere around $800. It's about $800 to buy a donkey's head. I've been to some weird places in our world. And I have eaten, against my better judgment, some weird things. But no one's ever offered me donkey's head. It's pretty worthless. The famine was so bad. In our economy, it would be $800 to buy a donkey's head. Mm-mm-mm. Get this. A handful of dove droppings was selling for about $20 in our economy. And why would they be eating dove droppings? There were seed pods in the dove droppings. Some of you are looking at me like, why are you saying this? It's in the scripture. You need to know how bad it was. They were eating dove droppings and it was being sold for what would be in our economy, $20. Can I tell you or describe to you any more clearly how bad it was and how bad the suffering was? But it gets worse. Some families were eating their own children to survive. King Joram is walking around the wall. He knows it's bad. And he's pacing. And a woman comes up to him, a young mother. And she says, hey, you just need to know something's going on. Yesterday, another young mother approached me. She approached me and she said, hey, why don't we kill your child today and eat him? And we'll kill mine tomorrow and and we can survive. So we killed my child and we ate my child, but today we can't find her child. King Joram at this moment, he loses it. He starts ripping his robes off in front of everyone. And the scripture says they find him underneath the wall sitting in sackcloth. He has clothed himself with goat's hair. And he, he doesn't know what to do and he's blaming the man of God. Bad times. That's what's going on. That's the context. The second part of every passage of Scripture, there is truth. There is truth. And there's the central idea here, at least to me, is this. Hope is greater than despair. Hope is greater than despair. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says about this time tomorrow. A saya of flour, basically seven quarts of flour, will be sold for a shekel. And, and two sayas of 14 quarts of barley will be sold for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In the worst times, God comes to the man of God. And he said, hey, king, as bad as it is, I've got hope. This time tomorrow, food's going to be cheap. We're going to be able to buy it. We're going to be able to afford it. And we're going to have as much as we want this time tomorrow. Let me tell you something. We serve the God of hope. He's the God of hope in the worst times. He loves us. He's the God of hope in the worst times. He's there to pick us up. My favorite song in all the world. 
I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help. Love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. Man, I was lost. I was lost. I had no hope. But in the worst, in the worst possible case, God loved me. Sin separates us from God, but He loves us. He sent His one and only Son. In the worst of conditions, God is always the God of hope. It was so wicked. In in the day of Noah, He told Noah to build a boat and the flood came and Noah was spared. What about Adam and Eve? They sinned and broke, fractured, destroyed their relationship with God. But God comes to them. We fractured our relationship with God because of our sin But the Bible says He loved us so much that He gave His one and only Son. There's hope here. Elisha said, hear the Word of God. It's so bad. But this time tomorrow, you're going to be able to buy all the flour you want, all the barley you want, and it's going to be cheap. Hope is greater than despair. That's the truth. Now let's look at application. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here is where we get the meaning and how it applies to me. And you're probably asking, how on this this earth does this story apply to me? How does it apply to, to Adamsville Baptist Church? What does it mean to this revival? What does it mean? Well, in the next just few minutes, we're going to see some some application. We're going to make this make sense. Application number one. How we apply this truth to our text or our life is this. Churches in America are in trouble. Churches in America are in trouble. Things aren't like they used to be. Number one, you can write this down. Satan is attacking the church. Satan is laying siege to the church. He's trying to cramp, confine And make useless the church. He's seeking to defeat and destroy every believer in every church that seeks to honor him. Or seeks to honor Christ. The church is in deep trouble. 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 and following say this. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. The church all across America is meeting, but all across America the church is in grave danger. The church is suffering. Satan is attacking the church, and, and many times he's attacking, attacking from within. A lot of things are going on. We're being attacked by unbelief. I want you to hear this. 
I've got a lot of statistics. I'm not going to share all of them. If you want them, I'll be more than happy to give you my notes, okay? They've got a lot more than I'm going to say because I know we need to press on. Understand this. Satan is attacking the church, and the results are obvious, especially among young people in our culture. Get this. Americans who strongly agree that the Bible is totally accurate in all that it teaches... 18 to 25-year-olds, only 30% of 18 to 25-year-olds believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Did you hear that? We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Ages 26 to 44, only 39% believe that the Bible is totally accurate. Ages 45 to 63, only 46%. 64 and over, 58%. We're in trouble. If these statistics hold true, Adamsville Baptist Church is in trouble. Ada First Baptist Church is in trouble. Unless we start doing something to reach young people, this church will die. My church will die and most every church in America will die. We're in trouble. We're being attacked by disbelief. We're being attacked by ridicule and opposition. Just if you want my notes and you want this these facts, I'll be more than happy to give, give them to you. But understand, in America's universities and higher institutes for learning, Christianity is being attacked almost at every turn. Almost at every turn. If you don't believe me, start doing research. But almost every turn, institutes of higher learning, our colleges and universities are, are ridiculing, opposing, and trying to eliminate religion as a topic of conversation in America's Institutes of Higher Learning. If you don't believe me, go check it out. Do some research. I have some research here. We're being attacked by godlessness. Philosopher Richard Rorty made this statement. In its ideal form, the culture of liberalism would be one that was enlightened, secular, through and through. It would be one in which no trace of divinity remained, either in the form of a divinized world or a divinized self. Such a culture would have no room for the notion that there are non-human forces to which human beings should be responsible. In other words, he's saying there is no God and we need to have a liberal culture that believes there is no God. We're being attacked by rebellion. Uh, I've got stuff there. We're being attacked by a church. Can you just get real? I'm just going to do a Miyagi to karate, to karate kid. Look, I. Look, I. Anybody see the old karate kid, not the new school. Old school karate kid. Look, ah, he wanted his attention. If you're a member here at Adamsville Baptist Church, I want you to look me square in the eye. I get to say things maybe Todd may not get to say. Maybe he does say them. This church is headed for doom and death if you don't embrace young people. If you don't embrace young people, you're headed for doom and death. I've got so much research... I, I don't have that in, in my notes here, but one of the greatest um, forms of new housing, especially in metropolitan areas, are old churches that have died and no, long, no one inhabits them anymore. Uh, contractors are coming in, they're gutting them, and they're making houses out of them. Nice, large houses. They're called desanctified homes is what they're called. The, it's, it's horrific what's going on, but you need to hear this. Look, I, busyness, busyness is the enemy of true spirituality. 
Busyness is the idea that we're going to do things the way we've always done things because we like the way things have been done. Busyness is essentially laziness. We like how things are because that's just how things are. And here's what happens. We place more emphasis on our traditions than we place on the truth of God's word. And soon our traditions grow out of date. But we would rather be comfortable in God's house than to trust God and do something different. And as a result of our comfort zones and as a result of our tradition, our churches are dying. They are dying. My church where I pastor, it's his church. It's not my church. I misspoke. It's his church where he allows me to pastor. If we don't emphasize young people and become relevant, our church will die. This church will die. And right now, churches all over America are dying because we're, we'd rather have our traditions than to embrace the truth and become all that we need to be to reach people for Christ. Churches are being attacked. Satan is laying siege to us. Many churches are suffering and many are dying. I want to share this and I've got to move on. Once again, if you want these facts, I'm not sharing all of them, I will be more than happy to give these to you so that you don't think I'm just spouting stuff. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Get this. Weekend church attendance is a key indicator that helps determine the spiritual climate of a person, a church, a city, a town, a country. Church attendance is more important than church membership when trying to determine the spiritual climate of of anything. Whether it's a person or a city or a church or a county or, or a state or a country. According to research, statistics say church attendance in America is at an all-time low and decreasing, okay? The latest research shows that 23% of Americans go to church at least once a month. Now, 23% of Americans go to church once a month. Now, here's the scary thought. The base standard for research had to be one time a month because there was not enough statistical information to make the base research go down to one time a week or, or twice a month. So in, in actuality, committed people who go to church are, I would say 7% to 10% of Americans go to church probably twice a month. To me, that is alarming. So we wonder why our culture sounds like it sounds. We wonder why things are going on. Most people are not committed to church. In reality, almost 90 or more than 90% of people in America do not go to church on a regular basis. Let's just go ahead and call it as what it is. Some of you are here. It's the first time you've been here in a long time. It's homecoming. You go to church on homecoming, Easter, and Christmas. So if you're here today and you had not been here in a while, hey, it's good to see you. And if you get your feelings hurt, don't take it up with me. I'm just telling the truth. Take it up with Him. It is what it is. More than 90% of Americans are not going to church on a regular basis. We're in trouble That's the application here. 
We're in trouble and churches are suffering and dying. The church in America is in grave danger. Just like the city of Samaria was being attacked and was dying, we're in grave danger and we're dying. And if my, the church where I pastor, if it ignores this, we will die. If this church ignores it, we will die. Application number two, hope demands a response. Hope demands a response. What do we, what do, we do? How do we respond to this word of hope? Elisha says to the king, he's, he's sitting under the wall and he's great with goat's hair and his world has been turned upside down and there is no hope. And Elisha, the man of God, said, hey, I have a word from God about this time tomorrow. About this time tomorrow, you're going to be able to buy flour and it's going to be cheap. And you're going to be able to buy twice as much barley and it's going to be cheap. How do we respond? How do we respond to hope? Hope demands a response. First of all, in times of despair and uncertainty, in a day when time... And time when people don't seek God, the word is this. God wants to do something and God can do something. God wants to do something and God can do something. Let me say it again. In a time and day in which we live, God wants to do something and God can do something. The question is, do we want him to do anything? In response to the word of hope that Elisha gave, there are four things that happen. And and you need to hear this. In response to what Elisha said, we have doubters. Doubters. The king's right-hand man. The king leaned on this guy. So the king is there. His right-hand man is there. And Elisha says, I have a word from God. And tomorrow about this time, we're going to be able to buy flour and barley. And it's going to be good. And it's going to be cheap. The king's right-hand man looked at Elisha. Look at verse 2. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look. In other words, hey. Even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? Could this happen? In response to the word of God, sometimes there are doubters. Sometimes there are doubters. And doubters say God can't do. Doubters say God won't do. Doubters are negative and they don't want any part of it because they just don't believe. Doubters can't be part of anything good that God is doing or wants to do. Doubters. Doubters have at least four characteristics in common. You need to know this. A doubter is a person that's unconvinced, uncertain, and unlikely to believe God can do anything Four characteristics found in the text of doubters. Number number one, doubters disbelieve. They are are filled with the 
the character or quality of disbelief. Doubters don't believe God can or will do anything great, and that's why they doubt. It is what it is. We're just going to continue doing what we're doing because God can't do anything. Let me tell you, God can do great things. I don't have time to tell you, but in my experience, since I've left here, uh, of course, I'm out at Ada, Oklahoma, and when I got out there, things were worse than they had described because they didn't tell me. They didn't tell me. I knew God was calling us out there, and that's just how it was. But we get out there, and they have just built a new education building, and they owe $750,000 on this new education building. Well, when I get there, uh, they're not meeting budget, and they have no idea how they're going to pay for this building. Now, they had a committee together, and they were going to try to come up with a strategy to, to, to pay this building off. So uh, this committee comes, and the chairman of the committee comes to me, and he said, Hey, we have a guy, um, and he wants to give $50,000 to help pay this building off. And I was like, How awesome is that? He said, Well, here's the deal. He wants a plaque placed in the kitchen with his dad's name on it saying that we gave this money and we just want to put a plaque in the kitchen. That disturbed me. And I asked the man and I asked the committee and we were, we were there with the deacons and, and, I, and I said, hey, if this man won't give this money in Jesus' name with no strings attached, we just won't take it. Well, they all looked at me like I had just fallen off the turnip truck. Whatever the turnip truck is, I've just heard that before. They thought I was crazy. Thought I was not. I, I've never seen $50,000 in a check before. I didn't know people had discretionary money they could do things like that with. Pushed the check back towards his direction and he left. That man since has left our church. The man who gave the money has never given us a dime. Let me tell you what happened. And, and I'm trying to illustrate to you, God does when we don't think he can. That year and every year since, we've, our, our budget has, has grown like crazy. Thanks be to the living God. But here's what happened that year. That year, and, and I didn't announce anything I didn't do anything. And you knew from my time here, I do not push money. I just don't. That's not my problem. That's God's issue. But that year, not only did we start taking in the largest budgets in our history and every year since, but you know what God's been doing? That year, he paid off that entire $750,000. And we didn't ask for anybody's money. Let me tell you something. God wants to do great things, but God does not and will not and cannot bless doubters. He won't bless doubters. Doubters disbelieve. Number two, doubters are filled with discouragement. Because they doubt and do not believe, they speak words and display actions that are discouraging to others. Hey, King, don't you listen to him? Could that really happen? He's in the face of the man of God. Could that really happen? You know what I call someone like that? A sniveler. Just sniveling. <laughs> I like that face. Isn't that face a good look at me? <laughs> Can you hear it? 
And I know you guys probably think I'm crazy. But there are people in the church just like that. We can't do that. We can't do that. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. If it's scriptural and it's the will of God, we can do that. Doubters have characteristics in common. They they disbelieve. that they, They are discouragers, but they also have the spirit of disobedience. Because they don't believe, they live in denial and disobedience, refusing to trust God and obey Him. When we refuse to trust God and obey Him, we're living in disbelief, and God doesn't honor that. God doesn't honor that. The last characteristic that doubters have in common is this. They, they will live and die in defeat. You want to know what happened to the guy? You want to know what happened to the guy who got in the face of Elisha and said, this is not going to happen? You want to know what happened to him? Elisha said, hey, surely you need to know this. It is going to happen. It's going to happen. But here's the thing. You're not going to be here to, to see it. And guess what happened? And we'll get to this in a minute. Guess what happened? Pretty shifty there. Don't want your sword landing on your foot, right? Guess what happened? It came to pass, and we'll get to that in just a second. The people were so overjoyed that there was flour and barley and they could go get it. They were streaming through the gates. And guess who got in the way? The old doubting servant of the king. Trampled to death because he got in the way. Because people were going to where the food was. Doubters. Doubters. When God spoke to Elisha saying the famine would be over, there were doubters. There were doers. There were doers. Look at verses 3 and 4 of the text. Now there were four men. Four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Now this is nice. Just picture this. They're at the entrance of the city gate. There's nothing to eat. The people are all over the place. They don't know what they're going to do. And they pick up a vibe pretty quick. We don't want to go there. So they said to each other, Why stay here till we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the Arameans. Let's go down to their camp. And surrender. If they spare us, man, that's good news. We live. But if they kill us, then we die. If they go to the city, they're dead. If they stay where they are, they die. If they go to the Arameans, at least there's a chance. I love doers. I love doers. A doer is a person that performs an action, an activity, or a task. Let me, under, let me share this with you. God blesses those who are willing to do. God blesses those who are willing to do. In this event, God chose four lepers. Now, there's just all kinds of sub-things we can pull in here. But isn't it awesome how God chooses those most unlikely people? Lepers. First of all, their skin. We don't know how advanced their leprosy was, but more than likely, this disease was eating the extremities of their face, their fingers, their toes, Their face, their skin was splotchy. More than likely, they had the stench of death and dying and disease. No one wanted to be around a leper. It amazes me how God uses the most unlikely people. Look at the text. When you look at at Matthew 
the lineage of Jesus, what's, what's a person that strikes out to you? It's Rahab the harlot to me. She had faith to believe that God was going to do something great, so she hid the spies. And guess what? She's in the lineage of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. God uses the most unlikely people, which causes me to ask, how come we shun so many people? If they don't look like us and dress like us, we just might miss out on something or someone great. You know that? God used a harlot to hide the spies. Moses was a murderer running from his past and God used him. God was only a, or David was only a boy and he sent a boy to do a man's job. God uses unlikely people. Doers have at least um, five characteristics in common. Number one, they're observant. Verses 3 and 4, we see that. They're obedient, and I've got to hurry. Verses 5 through 8, they're committed. They're committed to do something more than what they're doing now. They're achievers. Verses 16 and 17. <coughs> Excuse me, I know that sounded good, didn't it? They're achievers. They go down to the Arameans, and guess what? They find out the Arameans are gone. God has sent a noise, and they thought it was that they were being attacked. So in the middle of the night, they ran, and they... They had clothes and stuff strewn all over the place. They get there, there's clothes, there's money, there's food. So they get there and they find clothes and money and they eat food. And then they say, hmm, we just can't. This, is, this isn't right. We can't just keep this all to ourselves. Hey, why don't we go tell Samaria? So they go up to Samaria. Well, the king hears it and he said, oh, they're just laying a trap for us. Take one of the few horses that we have. They've been eating everything. I think they have like five horses left. Take the horses and go down there and see. They go down there and see, and sure enough, the Arameans have left, and everything is behind. It's all there. Doers are achievers. They go and do great things. Achievers experience the power of God to accomplish great things because they do great things. Last but not least, they're blessed. Doers are blessed because they get to see and experience the power of God. Last but not least, two more things. When God spoke to Elisha, saying the famine would be over, there were doubters, there were doers, but there's this idea of danger. Look at verse 4. If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. Hear this, and I, I move on. If there is no danger, it doesn't require faith. If there is no danger, it doesn't require faith. Let that marinate for a little bit if it does if it doesn't involve danger it doesn't require faith how come we like to walk where we can see it's nice to walk where we can see but what does faith say faith says we should believe when we don't see if it if it doesn't have danger in it it doesn't require faith when we choose to live by faith and do something, two elements of danger that we face. Number one, the danger of dying. We could die. But if we stay here, we're certainly going to die. The danger of dying. If we do something, we might die. If we do nothing, we certainly will die. But number two, the second element of danger is the danger of taking a risk. That's the thing about a risk. We don't know what the, what the end is going to be, but it's, but it's a risk. And if the risk is the right risk, there's a great reward, correct? At a time when God spoke to Elisha, there was doubters and doers. There's this element of danger. 
but they got to see the deliverance of God. That's the last thing. If we're going to do something and trust God by faith, He, by His Word, will do greater things than we can think or imagine. But the question we've got to ask ourselves is this. Am I going to stay here and die? Or am I willing to do whatever it takes? We might have some pitfalls and some bumps and we might experience some pain. But I'm telling you, if we don't do anything, we will die. And you know what, Adamsville, I'm going to tell you this. Personally, I can't change the world, but I can change my world. I I can't change anyone but me, but I can influence my world. Adamsville Church, I've been riding around. You have a huge opportunity here to reach people for Christ in a community that's much like the rest of America. There's probably more than 10% going to church on a regular basis here, but I'm telling you, there's, there's 75, 80, 85% of most people who really aren't committed to go anywhere, and there's work to be done here. But the question we've got to ask, are we going to stay here till we die, or are we going to risk, risk it all to try to reach people And tell them about Christ. That's where we are. That's where I'm at in Ada. That's where our world is. That's where our our country is. We can't stay here. Or we're going to die. Everyone is standing. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. And I want to ask Todd to come up here in a moment. Because when I pray, I'm done. But I think every one of us need to ask ourselves this question. Am I willing to stay where I am? Am I willing to stay where I am or am I willing to step out and say, I want things to be different? Some of you here today, the Spirit of God spoken to you and right now, maybe if life is over, you're not ready to meet God. And, and I want to ask you, why stay there till you die? Come, come and, and we'll share with you how you can know Jesus. Some of you. You know you're a follower of Christ, but, but you're not very committed. And the Spirit of God has spoken to you, and maybe you're asking the question, why should I stay here till I die? Maybe, it's God, maybe God's calling you to a greater walk. Some of you are leaders of the church. And you know that unless things change, great things can't happen here like, like they should or like they could. And maybe some of you need to come and pray and ask yourselves, why should our church stay here? Why shouldn't we commit to do something greater? Revival can't start unless it starts with me. So in a moment, I'm going to pray and the invitation is going to be open. Are you willing to stay where you are or are you willing to risk it all and follow Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word's gone out and I thank you for your word. I pray now as we process it and your spirit works and moves that we would do business with you. May you be honored on this day and in this place. May revival start with me. May it start with us. In Jesus' name, amen. If God has spoken, you feel the need to come.